My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. 8.30 in the morning, August 14. The unthinkable happens again. Just as the denizens of the sleepy little towns in southern Haiti were starting to go about their workday, the ground started to shake. First glasses and picture frames, then whole houses. Over the next several seconds, buildings, churches, and homes crumbled to the ground. I'm on several WhatsApp groups with large groups of people across Haiti. Within seconds, it started to light up. All across the country, from south to north, people were reporting that they could feel the rumbling. Over the following hours, news stations picked up the story. A 7.2 magnitude earthquake had struck the southern part of Haiti. Remember, earthquake magnitudes are logarithmic, not linear. A magnitude 7 is 10 times more powerful than a magnitude 6. And by the same token, a magnitude 8 is 10 times more powerful than a 7. Thus, this earthquake was twice as powerful as the terrible 2010 earthquake. Talking with Haitians, this felt like one last blow that they didn't need. The last three years have been racked with violence, economic collapse, inflation, protests, and a presidential assassination. It felt like a pylon. Haitians started to say that they felt like their island was cursed. Almost as soon as news started to emerge, conversations started from Port-au-Prince to Europe and the United States about how to address this disaster differently than 2010. It was widely recognized that the rebuild effort had been unsuccessful with the last earthquake. This is the last in a multi-part series about earthquakes in Haiti. If you've been with us for this entire series, you've seen both the ill-fated efforts and the successes that happened in the aftermath. Everyone was determined to do better this time. This earthquake was different than the 2010 quake. In some ways it was worse, but in many ways it was better. First, let's touch on the geography. If we look at Haiti as a reverse letter C, this earthquake hit in the bottom part of that C. Now Port-au-Prince, the site of the 2010 quake, is in the middle of the letter C, in the middle of the country. Foremost, we will not see the massive casualty numbers that we saw in the 2010 earthquake. As we've mentioned before, that earthquake was so deadly because multi-story concrete structures with insufficient iron rebar simply crumbled and pancaked down. The area struck this year is nowhere near as densely populated. Whereas the population of Port-au-Prince metro area alone is probably around 3 million, the population of the three entire departments struck by this earthquake is only 1.5 million. There are only two cities of any size, one with 70,000, that's Lakai, and one with 30,000, that's Jeremy. And so, what does this mean? Importantly, you have many fewer multi-story buildings. You are more likely to have people living in the countryside with aluminum roofs, much less dangerous during seismic activity. Consequently, the death toll is likely to end a little less than 3,000 people. While this still makes it the deadliest natural disaster in the entire world in the last three years, It is orders of magnitude lower than the 100,000 to 300,000 that died in 2010. That's good news, if you can ever consider a tragedy of 3,000 people to have good news. Unfortunately, providing help to this region is much, much more difficult than it was with the last earthquake. Part of this, also, is simple geography. Port-au-Prince had an international airport. In the days after the 2010 earthquake, the United States Air Force took over operations at the airport and coordinated massive shipments of aid and medical personnel. With this earthquake, the areas affected are not only rural, they're very mountainous. Remember that the very word Haiti means mountainous land in the native tongue. 
It is a five to six hour drive from Port-au-Prince over hilly roads to reach the quake zone. But this ignores the most important fact. There is only one road out of Port-au-Prince to this area, and it is fully and completely in the hands of armed gangs. The police station in this pass was abandoned. Doctors Without Borders closed their clinic in this zone due to violence. Bodies often lie in the street with burned out vehicles. In the days following the disaster, the gangs of this area agreed to allow disaster aid to pass. Cautiously, some organizations attempted to go through this area, mostly in the early morning hours while gang members might be sleeping. However, this truce did not hold. In the weeks after the event, two physicians, including a rare Haitian orthopedic surgeon, were kidnapped. So now, if tools and supplies are to reach the zone of destruction, they must be flown into the small local airstrips. While the reduced density of homes in this quake area led to diminished destruction, it makes a response somewhat more difficult. Although teams have been able to focus on those two cities, the majority of the residents in these quake zones live in difficult-to-reach mountainous villages. Even if you can get to the zone of damage, you still need to get to the little towns on dirt roads. The approach this time has been significantly different. Now, more than a month after the event, we can look back and see that there appears to be more coordination. There is a focus on organizations that have been working in Haiti for a long time. Lists are made of places that need aid, and then those are matched with people that can meet the need. Clusters have been formed for each sphere, health, hunger, housing, etc. These meet every two days to discuss needs and coordinate which organizations will meet them. It is not perfect, but nothing can be perfect in such a challenging environment. There is another aspect where this response has a chance to be more effective. As I said, much of the damage was in smaller towns. In every small Haitian town I have visited, people know each other. They have a village council. There is accountability. It is much harder to build back as a community in a large, anonymous, sprawling metropolis like Port-au-Prince. If approached correctly, building back will have some more natural oversight and local leadership. The primary issue this time is that the disaster has received little attention and few donations. The world is suffering from COVID. Afghanistan has just collapsed, and America has issues of its own. I think I can say this in an unbiased manner because our organization doesn't even work in the south part of Haiti. Donations we have received from the earthquake have been sent to other trusted institutions working there. Even beyond, and maybe more importantly than our attention span, Americans aren't sure what to do in Haiti. After the 2010 earthquake, Americans and donors took several lessons. They felt that they could do nothing to alleviate the suffering in Haiti. They had tried, and it just didn't work. They thought that maybe they even made things worse. And so, when this disaster struck, many thought the situation was hopeless and their help might make it more so. I would like to say, unequivocally, that this is not the view of the average Haitian. If you talk to the average Haitian on the ground, and I'm not talking about the wealthy elites or those that live overseas, they will universally tell you that Haiti does need help. What they want, what they crave, though, is that help would be done in a different way. They want to be involved in the decisions, in the same way that you would want to be involved in rebuilding your city if a hurricane hit it. They prefer for organizations to have already done good work in Haiti to lead the effort. They're hesitant about outsiders with no experience. What they really want is accompaniment. And so, the supplies and donations have been very sluggish. The U.S. has pledged $32 million, compared to more than $1 billion in 2010. There are clear needs. The bridge on the road into Jeremy, one of the two major cities struck, is still not passable to cars due to damage. This is basic stuff. Debris is still on the ground, blocking mountain passes. 50,000 houses were destroyed, 
and little has been done to rebuild them, despite local institutions saying that they are ready and waiting. 25 health centers were damaged or destroyed. These need to be rebuilt, and there are reputable organizations that are capable of doing this. I was speaking with one of my Haitian friends recently about this disaster, and he said what I think is the heart of the Haitian people. After the last earthquake and the failed response, a lot of Americans and outsiders thought the Haitian people just want to be left alone. My trying to help them may simply be hurting them. This is, in my opinion, too simplistic. There are some Haitians that want no foreigners to have anything to do with helping Haiti. I find these are generally, maybe not always, but generally, politicians or Haitians that don't actually live in Haiti or in the poor areas. The average citizen knows that Haiti needs help. They know it and they welcome it. Most will say they want Americans to do more, but they crave Americans and outsiders who will partner with them, not simply impose their will. And as we look back on all of these episodes, there are lessons we can take on how to address this disaster and rebuilding. As outsiders, we must avoid the impulse to overpromise and underdeliver like the American Red Cross. Outside of the first few days of emergency relief, we have to work with locals to achieve our goals. Not just so that we can say we did or feel good about it, but mainly because otherwise we're going to fail. We should learn to build together with Haitians like Partners in Health did, to have patience, to be okay staying past your timeline. Working in Haiti is harder than you can imagine. The average citizen earns less than half as much as the citizen of the next poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, which is Nicaragua. With each increment a country is poorer, working in recovery becomes exponentially more difficult. Roads, ports, land rights, malnutrition, weak governance, they all converge. But change is possible. On a personal note, my wife and I would not have left our careers in the United States to be here if we felt it wasn't. There are people and organizations across Haiti, like the clinic at which we work, that are slowly, year over year, improving their communities. But it requires accompaniment and it requires solidarity. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history, and there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.